the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into Hour 2, it's a delight to bring on one of my favorite analyst commentators, and that is John Hinderocker. He is co-publisher and co-editor of the Powerline blog, powerlineblog.com, also an occasional guest host. John, welcome back. How are you doing, sir? Hey, doing very well. Actually, I just got back from a week of vacation, so I'm... Uh... Rested and ready to rumble. At the risk of uh, at the risk of admitting, I may have missed something you wrote or said somewhere. Where did you go? Anywhere good? Do you recommend South Carolina? Yeah, uh, South good. Carolina. We had three of our four children with us and had a uh, wonderful time. Good for you. You're not going to baseball games anymore, are you? Uh, not at Target Field. Not to watch the Minnesota Twins. Tell us why. I ask because my producer Bill who loves baseball probably more than anyone you've ever met and can tell you stats and names and teams from, you know, the 40s and 50s. He's, he, he did the same thing. He's done. He's absolutely done. Tell him why you're not going to the uh, Minnesota, to Target Field in Minnesota anymore. Yeah, I did a post on this uh, earlier today. They have put up a sign on the fence uh, in, in, in the corner, and there's a sign there for Ben and Jerry's ice cream, and one for a bank, and one for Delta Airlines. And But the other sign they've got is George Floyd, 1973 to 2020. He used to play for them, right? <laughs> it's unbelievable, Seth. I mean, why anybody who runs a professional baseball team would think, oh yeah, that's what they come to a baseball game, they want to see a memorial to to George Floyd. I mean, it's so dumb. It's painful. So no, I I I've had it. Good. Good. I uh I was a tr- I was initially uh wanting to talk to you John about uh, a piece that I I think a lot of people are probably going to end up citing if not uh today and tomorrow years from now that you put up a power line Democrat support for Hamas. It's a headline you wouldn't have seen 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's talking about a bipartisan consensus on allies and enemies in the Middle East that worked pretty well and pretty evenly up until, I don't know, maybe starting in earnest about 20 years ago, quietly and then louder and louder to the point where we actually see outright support for a designated terrorist organization in the Democratic Party. Would you like to talk about this a little bit? Well, that's right, Seth. Historically, support for Israel was a bipartisan element of American foreign policy, and that started to fragment, like you say, about 20 years ago, and I think it accelerated somewhat during the Obama administration. Obama had this whole concept of the alliance with Iran, and he was rather hostile to Israel, and I think uh, the fact that, that President Trump was was uh, very much pro-Israel, you know, our politics have basically, have basically become a team sport, right? You got, we got our team and the other guy's team. And there, it seems like there are no issues anymore on which there's bipartisanship. Or, or, and for many people, there are no issues as to which the facts really matter. You know, yeah. it's just which side is my team on? Mm-hmm. And it's really come to a head, I think, with the, the recent violence, um, between, uh, 
the, the uh, between Hamas and, and the Israelis. And so we see this in a poll that was done by the Trafalgar Group, and that's what I was writing about. And, and uh, it's over 1,000 likely voters. And the Republican response is, the question is very simple. Who is most to blame for the current violence in Israel? And Republican uh, respondents um, acted like Americans normally have over the years. Uh, only 12.5% blamed Israel primarily, and 67.6% uh, said Hamas mm-hmm. is uh, primarily responsible. Hamas, Iran, or mm-hmm. uh Palestinian Authority, overwhelmingly uh, Hamas. Well, that makes sense since Hamas launched, what is it now, Seth, 4,000 rockets yeah. into Israel. Right. <laughs> you think that would be enough right. to convince people that they're responsible for the violence? Mm-hmm. But then the Democrats. It's really shocking, Seth. Uh, a plurality of Democrats, 38.5%, substantial plurality, say that Israel is primarily responsible for the violence. Fewer than half as many, 15.5%, fewer than half as many, say that Hamas is primarily responsible for the violence. So there's a lot of undecided Democrats, I guess still trying to make up their minds, but a very strong plurality say uh, Israel is primarily to blame. Is it part and parcel of... This is an unfair question because the answer might be both. But is it part and parcel of two things going on? One, uh, a whitewashing or a defining of deviancy down, if you will, in the cultural uh, cultural uh, estimation of Hamas by the left and the Democrats. You have gotten talking points that I didn't think were serious 10 years ago. They seem to be taking seriously now. Hamas isn't just a terrorist organization, right? You see a lot of this now. It's also a social services organization. We shouldn't wipe with such a wide brush. Are we defining deviancy or terrorism down on the one hand? On the other, ratcheting up the um, perceived uh, uh, the perceived uh, uh, revanchism or 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 uh, extremism of Israel with labels that I thought were buried a long time ago. I thought the apartheid thing was gone in the 70s to be honest with you. It's back with a vengeance. Yeah, I think I think those things are both true. I I think that thinking on the left doesn't even I I I think that for the most part uh, what these democrats are thinking is that Israelis or at least Jewish Israelis are white. Palestinians are non-white, and therefore we are on the side of the Palestinians. I really think it's as simple as that. And and I think the fact that the real leaders of the Democratic Party are just violently anti-Israel is also obviously a big factor. I mean, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, these are the real leaders of the Democratic Party, and they don't seem to have any serious problem with, with Hamas, and they're violently anti-Israel. So we have this spectacle where Hamas, which is an openly terrorist and genocidal organization, the party now apparently considers Hamas to be part of their team. What's interesting about the names, you'd you'd probably have added Ilan Omar in that list too, wouldn't you? Oh, I think I did, didn't I? The list you gave, the reason I wanted to make the point, the list you gave was Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Rashida Tlaib, AOC, and I think you'd have added Ilan Omar, of course. Well, you would I, th- have. I think I did. Yeah, okay. In, fa- yeah. in fairness, that, fair enough. She certainly deserves Right, 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 right. That, that was my point. But, so, which is this. 
accepting Elizabeth Warren, all of those are self-proclaimed socialists or members or previous members or supporters of the YSA. Now, Elizabeth Warren is probably as socialist as Bernie Sanders. I don't think she describes herself that way is, is the only point I'm making. So aside from her, there's this interesting Marxist socialist um, hatred towards Israel that has existed a long time. If you went into socialist bookstores or whatever, you know, Zionism was always the, uh, the great lie in the socialist bookstores when it came to the Middle East. You see this as interesting, isn't it, a little bit when you consider the Marxist foundations of such things as BLM and kind of the unification of all things Marxist, whether it's domestic or foreign policy? Do you think that's at play here somewhat? It is, I, and I and I, I think I think that you know the Marxist mind is so crude and so stupid, right? Every situation, the first thing you got to do is you have to identify an oppressor and an oppressed, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Well, Israel is a successful country. A country. Uh, Gaza is a you know blank hole. I'll I'll, I'll refer to President Trump's characterization. Well, okay, so there you have it. You know, if you're a liberal, I guess that means the Israelis must be the Gazans or the, the Palestinians. I don't think their thinking is any more sophisticated than that, okay. but that really is the essence of, of Marxism right there. That plus some kind of, what is it, leftover notion from the Cold War that Israel is in the camp that has always been opposed to the Marxist movement throughout the world, right? It has always been a symbol of colonialism and imperialism and racism as the non-aligned movements and as the Soviet Union would would would, would uh, crater about during the 60s and 70s and 80s, the heydays of the Cold War. It is a leftover outpost that the Marxists hated and all the Marxist movements hated and were targeting, I think. Well, that's right. You know, the Russians, of course, were the big supporters of the PLO yeah, and protectors right, of right. the PLO. That's right. That's right. And it was only when the Soviet Union fell that really decisive action could be taken against the PLO. And, yes, that's exactly right. Uh, John, do you have to run or do you have time to stay a little longer? If you've got to go, oh, I respect I'll stick around, it. sure. You're good? Okay, thank you. I love spending Friday nights with John Hinderocker. I'm Seth Leibson. He's John Hinderocker from the Powerline blog. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Privileged and delighted to have John Hinderocker with us. He is the co-publisher, co-founder, co-editor of the Powerline blog, among other things. John, I want to pick up on something you said in the last uh, segment, in the previous segment, if I could. You had said there really are no issues anymore that you can think of that garners any kind, any sense of real bipartisanship, like certain things used to with regard to foreign policy, uh, particularly with regard to the Middle East, as we were talking about it. And I wonder, let me throw a theoretical at you, a theoretical. I've been talking with some friends in D.C. about how divided we are right now. And a friend of mine made the point that, you know, the Civil War in the 1860s was the most horrible example of our divide, but it was about one big thing. And today it seems like it's about everything. In the 1860s, a child in South Carolina is probably reading the same textbook as uh, a child in, um, I don't know, Georgia or, for that matter, Manhattan. We don't have anything like that anymore. We, we are so much more divided than we were in the 1860s. It's, as you say, hard to find an issue on which we aren't. 
are we more divided than we were then? Are things worse now in a sense than they were then? Obviously, the enormity of the crime of slavery is such a greater thing. But maybe now, including our debates about slavery, it's part and parcel of the debate as well. Well, let me just point out one respect in which uh, that hypothesis, I think, is right, Seth. Uh, remember that the Confederates were great respecters of the American Revolution. If you if you look at the Gettysburg Address, for example, Abraham Lincoln hearkened back to the founding of America. Well, the Confederates did that, too. In fact, they would often refer to their secession as the Second American Revolution, and they argued wrongly, in my opinion, but they argued that they were the true inheritors of 1776. So we had two sides there that were divided by one huge issue, but that had a common heritage that they respected. That isn't really true anymore. The left in America today hates America, period. They hate the founding. Uh, you look at the 1619 Project, you look at critical race theory, you look at all the in the public schools, they hate America. They hate everything about America. They hate it from beginning to middle to end. And you do start to wonder, Seth, how exactly are we going to live together as, as fellow citizens? The additional irony about what you just said, John, uh, is not lost on me. I think it's lost on a lot of people, not you guys. You guys understand this in, 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 intimately. But if you listen to the anti-American chant today, the anti-American tropes and chants today, they fully embrace actually the 1776 reading that the Confederates did. The Confederates thought 1776 should have been an expansion and at least a protection, if not an expansion of slavery. The Union didn't. And when you look at the 1619 Project, when you look at the Ibram Kendi's versions of American history, you find that they're, they're, they're reading American history in light of the lost cause of the Confederacy. Yeah, it's ironic, Seth, because uh, the number one political theorist of today's Democratic Party is John C. Calhoun. Right just as he was right. in, uh, in 1850. Right. They read American history the same way uh, John Calhoun did. So there's that irony um, that, 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 that's really important, I think. They are adopting the arguments of the side that not only lost, the side that was not only smaller, um, but also the side um, that um, – that, that, that was just that, – that, that we all thought was wrong. I mean when we read the Dred Scott decision and you read it in law school, you knew of it in high school, you knew that there was an evil person in this Dred Scott decision whose name was Roger Tawney of Maryland, the chief justice of the Supreme Court. But the BLM in 1619 History of America is the history he recites. Right. Not the no, history think, that John McClain, right. that Justice McLean in dissent recites, which is the history I love. Right. No, they think Justice Tawney was right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and so you do wonder, what, what is the common basis for our, for our citizenship? Mm-hmm. You know, this ties in with so many things going on, Seth. There was a post at Powerline that I, I think Paul Mirengoff did a day or two ago about five counties in Oregon voting to secede from Oregon and join Idaho. Now, you know, it's not going to happen, but this kind of thing is going on all over. You got, whether it's people in upstate New York, whether it's people in the Central Valley in California, 
um, whether it's people in a lot of states like my own, Minnesota, where people who live outside of the Twin Cities metro, you look at what's going on in the cities with... Uh, with abhorrence. And, and well, we, we, we lost a, t- a ton of ground when you think about the, I hate to use the word twice, but when you think of the enormity of the challenge in front of us, um, we've lost a lot of ground. And I think it's fair to say, particularly through our education systems, uh, institutions. And it makes me wonder, and I'll ask you in just like the next two, three minutes we have left, John, you're very familiar with the terms American experiment. How stands it? Yeah, well, of course, I'm the president yes. of the Center yes. of the American yes. Experiment yes. here in uh, Minnesota. I was going to let it just slide uh, under there unless you wanted to address yeah, it. Yeah, so. okay. well, you know, look, uh, what can you say? I mean, right now, I think this is the most troubled period of our history since the Civil War. And, you know, Seth, serious people are starting to talk about disunion as a possibility. Do we really want our states to be governed by... Uh, California and, and New York and Maryland and you know uh, and do they want to be governed by South Dakota and Arkansas? I, I don't know. I mean, you look at what Texas and Florida are doing, and um, what 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 do states like that really need the federal government government for other than national defense? Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. I mean, they could run their own affairs, and so it seems to me, Seth, that we may be approaching a situation where there are two solutions. One of them is disunion. It's kind of like Brexit, you know, find a way to separate the red and the blue. And, and, and I think maybe the alternative turns out to be federalism. Is there a problem, though, in separating red and blue that we consign uh, too many of our red brethren to uh, blue tyranny? It's much like oh, the thought is, of what do you do with like the minority the of Jews in, in Oregon that want to join? Yeah, 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 yeah. What, what do you do with the minority of Jews on the West Bank if you give it to to uh, Mahmoud Abbas? Yeah, right. yeah. No, look. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that at the moment it's a very practical okay. alternative, right? I mean, the, the difficulty would be enormous, just like Brexit. We'd, we'd be know, welcoming a lot of you Minnesotans here to Arizona, is what I think, which would be an improvement for Arizona, knowing the, <laughs> knowing knowing the Republicans of Minnesota as I do. This would be good for Arizona. Yeah, so I don't know, Seth. Look, it's a dark time in our history, and we conservatives have to fight every single day against critical race theory, against anti-Americanism, against racism, against all these things that are coming from the left. John Hinderocker, Powerline Blog, Center for the American Experiment. Thank you, sir. As always, have a blessed weekend. Hey, you too, Seth. All right, brother. Talk to you soon. I'm Seth Leibson. Open Lines Friday, 602-508-0960. Welcome back. If you're thinking of going solar, let me tell you about my friend Solar Sandy. The difference between Solar Sandy and the other solar companies is that she actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. She bought integrity back to solar in Arizona. If you're thinking of going solar, it's so important you do it the right way, and Solar Sandy has the formula. She wants to put more of your hard earned money back in your pocket. If you sign up now, she will pay your power bills for one year and your solar power payments for one year, and you will receive a $1,000 bonus at signing. That's right, a $1,000 bonus sinus, no solar panel payments, no power bill payments for one year. She'll meet you via Zoom or in person, and I would urge you to read the testimonials on her website, AskSolarSandy.com. 
AskSolarSandy.com. To get started, go to that website, AskSolarSandy.com, and let Sandy do all the work, or give her a call at 623-850-8229. That's 623-850-8229. We haven't spent much time talking about the um, January 6th commission that the House Democrats have passed, and that will now uh, go into the Senate. A resolution passed Wednesday to create a commission, congressional probe, into the origins of the January 6th, um, what Democrats call insurrection. It was 252 to 175, 35 Republicans joining the Democrats, 35 Republicans showing us who needs to be primaried is the way I read that. Thank you for that. Uh, Clarity. Clarity. That's what we're looking for. Clarity. The commission uh, is uh, to, quote, investigate and report on the facts and causes relating to the January 6, 2021 domestic terrorist attack upon the United States Capitol complex, as laid out by a dear colleague letter from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Three words in that letter. I just read them. Make it clear that the outcome has already been predetermined. Domestic terrorist attack. Domestic terrorist attack. A particularly fitting definition of show trials is found on Wikipedia, which they say, quote, tend to be retributive rather than corrective. And they are also conducted for propagandistic purposes, close quote. Retribution and propaganda are exactly what the Democrats are doing. But here are some facts the Democrats are up against. The incident on January 6th was an insurrection and a domestic terrorist attack only in the perverted minds of power-hungry Democrats and their media apparatchiks. The offenders were guilty of trespassing, scuffling with authorities, vandalism, and apparently some instances of theft. They were not armed with guns. They were not armed with explosives. The government was never in danger of being overcome. There was no one having any plan that has been revealed to date with an intention of taking hostages. If swarming into the Capitol was a riot, it pales in comparison to the BLM and Antifa rampages that not everyone lived through last summer because their lives were taken by the mostly peaceful demonstrators who were aided and abetted by Democrats. The only person killed at the U.S. Capitol was an unarmed Air Force veteran named Ashley Babbitt who was shot by a still unnamed federal agent. Got it? Unarmed civilian shot by an unnamed federal agent. I'll repeat. Unarmed civilian shot by unnamed federal agent. The other deaths were either accidental or from natural causes. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick did not die at the hands of an insurrectionist who hit him with a fire extinguisher, a narrative the media pushed until it couldn't. He passed away a day later from two strokes with no external or internal injuries. A little bit more to say about this on the other side. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Thank you for uh, joining us. I just wanted to finish this issues and insights on the January 6th commission. As Roger Simon has pointed out, videos show some Capitol Police officers waving demonstrators through into the building as if it were a national holiday. But given the facts and forgetting the fiction, those who continue to call January 6th an insurrection are either dishonest to further a political agenda or woefully uninformed. Of course, the Democrats, cynical and corrupt as ever, see January 6th as an opportunity to further gaslight, dare we say, brainwash the country into believing the Republican Party, Trump and their supporters are a genuine threat to the nation. They're white supremacists, dangerous revolutionaries, irredeemable deplorables, bitter clingers, Neanderthals. The commission is another stamp on the Democrats' ticket to ever greater and they hope permanent political power, marginalization and isolation from the mainstream of Republicans. The Democrats insist that January 6th was a dark day in U.S. history. Though it certainly wasn't a shining moment, the real darkness is yet to come. The more Democrats accrue and consolidate power, the gloomier the future becomes. And if it feels as if we're becoming Sovietized, then maybe that's because we are. We are. There we are. <laughs> Rob isn't surprised. How are you, Rob? I'm I'm fine. Perfect intro, by the Did way. Did you call in on this or on Bill's 500 I, top rock I, list? Both and more. Okay. Um, January 6th is a crock, and I still don't think we really know who the people are who came in to the Capitol because it's not really being, you know, publicized. And you know, you got that uh, uh, the guy with the funny hat and the horns, you know, from yeah, from Arizona. Um, and we still don't really know, I don't think, uh, where he stands, who he was. And I'm just very suspect about the whole thing. But I think you're absolutely right. I think it's set up uh, and they make it much worse than it is. And unfortunately, I've heard even on the hourly and half hourly Salem News uh, blurbs that they keep calling it, you know, an insurrection, yep. uh, a riot and violence. And, and that needs to a violent uprising. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Um, the the other thing, and again, before I get to Bill, because it pales in comparison, by the way, to the violence that the liberal left threw into the streets of Washington D.C. and Virginia the day after Donald Trump's inauguration in 2017. Go back and read the stories of things being lit on fire and police cars oh, yeah. having to abandon neighborhoods because it was oh, unsafe for them. It yeah, pales and in yet comparison. Again, yeah, the, the media doesn't bother bringing any of that up because it would make things look different than they really are. And that's that's the biggest gripe I have about the media is not telling anybody the truth. Uh, and we just need to continue calling them out on that. Um, the other thing was, oh, and I should tell you, um, I'm, I'm very humbled and honored because Brandon Weikert uh, follows me on uh, Twitter now. Excellent. <laughs> Good. Which I think is wonderful. Good. Um, Have I you told him you're honored that I follow you? Well, I think he already assumes that because you were my first caller. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, uh, with, with John Hinraker, you guys were commenting about, you know, who's to blame in terms of or how many people on one side or the other think uh, Israel or Hamas is, you know, the worst. No, that, that's really um, not quite accurate. I truly and honestly believe that the real culprit in 
this whole setup is Joe Biden and the administration, because none of this would be happening if we had continued uh, the Donald Trump policy of a strong, stable military, a strong, stable Middle East policy. And everything changed after January 20th. If you're the fundamentalists in uh, Gaza or the West Bank and you are somewhat learned and they all are very learned by the way it's a it's a very educated sure. population oh it is and they learn that the new president of the united states is fueled and animated by a highly anti-israel party and That's if right. you see some of the first moves of this new administration are to cozy up to your chief donor iran iran being hamas's yep. chief donor is mm-hmm. to cozy up to Iran and give $200 million to the Palestinian Authority that Donald Trump had held in abeyance. What exactly. are you to conclude but then to give it a try here? Maybe we have a new, maybe we have a new, a, a new level of support, right? What, what have you done in those three signals? Have you told well, the terrorists in the Palestinian territories or in Iran that we're going to be harder on you? Or softer on you? Well, you just gave us a bunch of money. I'm thinking softer. I'm knowing softer. And that's just the very point, Seth. I mean, you know, giving money to the terrorist organization and then, you know, again, I keep going back to signaling Iran. And, of course, we're doing things with them and nobody's discussing it in the media. But, I mean, that's the very point. And that's why, you know, Xi accused uh, Joe Biden of all of this because he's 180 the whole Middle East policy that had resulted in stability and peace and no rocket firings to the tune of, what, 4,000 now plus? It happened during um, Obama, <coughs> and it happened during Biden. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. It did not happen on Trump's watch, even though, he moved, exactly right. even though he moved the embassy. Well, yeah, and they all predicted it was going to result in Correct. disaster, and they were all wrong as usual. Correct. But again, I think that, again, that's, this is why... You know, elections have consequences, and why whoever's in charge of the United States, when it comes to especially foreign policy, matters, because the signals that are sent, and every signal that has been sent since Joe has been in charge, has been weakness, and, and uh, I don't know, uh, complacency and not caring, and a lot of anti-Israel stuff, along with the appeasement. And when you look at these players in the Middle East, and including Israel, uh, they all see this. And I believe in my heart of hearts that this is exactly why everything that's been happening in the last couple of weeks in Israel has been happening, because Hamas saw an advantage, Iran saw the advantage, and from there, because of our administration's weakness, uh, they took advantage of that. And I, I, nobody can convince me otherwise, because it's so clear and it's so obvious and again, this, I don't know, it may be common sense, it may be a little bit of education on my end, but I, I really believe that um, our administration is the reason why things are just going to hell in a handbasket over there. Mm-hmm. And I am disappointed that they did a ceasefire, but that's kind of a separate issue. Um, I, nothing is gained by a ceasefire except uh, allowing the enemy to rearm itself. And that's why I was kind of surprised that... Uh, Netanyahu and well, I guess this was their parliament that wanted to push the ceasefire. And and again, I guess Joe's going to take advantage of that and say, well, yeah, it's because of us. We you know stop the violence. Well, again, that's 
not right either. But um, we can we could go on and on about this. But I, I truly believe that uh, American weakness is signaled uh, by uh, everything that we've been doing since January 20th. And that is the single most reason why things are happening in the Middle East. And then, you know, we can talk hold, about. Hold uh, the thought. Yeah, hold it, hold it, hold it right there. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, Rob. And surprise, you had a couple more thoughts for us, sir. Well, the the main thoughts, of course, and I've been through all the political crap, but what I really wanted to find out was what were Bill's top songs from Rush? Oh, that's easy. Bill, what were your top songs from Rush? Number one's Limelight. I like Limelight. I, I think it's actually sort of an autobiography of uh, you know being in the limelight. Okay, we weren't it, we, we weren't asking for liner notes on every song. Bill, what's your second favorite Rush song? Okay, <laughs> uh, I've got Spirit of Radio up there. Free Will. Yeah. Okay. Subdivisions. Good. What was the one Jim Ryan was w- worried about you not having? Oh, Jim says the trees should be in my top three. It's yeah. number nine for me. The trees is number nine for you. Okay. Number nine. Good. In Rush or number nine in all 500? Nine in Rush, 16 overall. That's a big low number for that song. Out of 500, <laughs> you're giving it 16? Okay, Rob, that's what I'm dealing with. Well, I understand, and but I can sympathize with both of you. Now, um, for Bill, do you like um, The Path, which was from the Presto album? Oh, I absolutely. Song. Yeah, um, I would put that in like a top, uh, well, at least top 20 of Rush songs. Um, I can't even get also, the Eagles on this list, and you're, you're now on your 15th Rush song. Passes 46 oh, overall for me, Rob. Okay. Now, have you listened to um, uh, Cream by any chance? They've got some good stuff. Not all, all of their collection, but I know. Uh, no, but I mean, you know, Sunshine of Your Love's obviously going to be up there. The White Room. Those right? are the two I, I mean, know. Are, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think those are good. Jimi Hendrix, obviously. Got I, I really do have to move on, gentlemen. If you that's want your a, show back, oh, Seth? I, I, if, if you don't mind. If you don't mind. This is important. I, it's not, actually. It's <laughs> yes, not. It that one guy has a 500 list of great rock songs that doesn't include Crosby, Stills, and Nash, doesn't include The Eagles, doesn't include Meatloaf, doesn't include... Eric Clapton doesn't include Paul Simon. This is not a rock and roll list. <laughs> oh, but it has okay. twenty Rush songs on it. Paradise by the Dashboard well, Light okay. is on there. What number is Paradise by the Dashboard Light? Four sixty-five. Four sixty-five. <laughs> Fine. One of the top okay. ten albums of all time, world-selling albums of all time, and 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 Bill gives its most famous song four hundred plus status. This is why we have a problem here, Rob. <laughs> Okay, well, anyway, I just wanted to add in to that, and I love you guys. Have a great weekend, thank you, and thank sir. you for your time. God sir. bless you. Fun Friday. I love it. Pete Peterson coming up. We'll be right back.